This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon offered for the third Sunday in Lent, March 7, 2021, at St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in Roanoke, Alabama. The principal text of the sermon is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, Jesus cleanses the temple. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. After flying all night, we landed in Israel and met our tour guide outside of the doors of the airport and got on a big tour bus and headed to the Galilee. We spent a few days there, and then about midway through our trip, we headed down to Jerusalem on the highway that sort of runs along the Jordan River. It was not originally on our itinerary to go to the Temple Mount, but myself and a few others in our group kept talking to our tour guide about how we really wanted to go to the Temple Mount if possible. And he decided to arrange it for us for one morning when we were in Jerusalem. Now, the present site of the Temple Mount is really this flat plaza that is built up in the middle of the old city of Jerusalem. It's surrounded by retaining walls, which includes the Western Wall. You sometimes hear that as the Wailing Wall, where Jewish people come and put their prayers between the bricks. These retaining walls that are left there were built during the reign of Herod the Great to expand the temple complex. Currently, there's 11 gates that get you up on the Temple Mount. Ten are reserved for Muslims, and only one is open to non-Muslims. And there are guard posts of Israeli police guarding each gate and in the vicinity. We had to go through sort of like airport-like security to be able to get up on the Temple Mount. We got there early to beat the crowd of the other pilgrims that would be coming to make it through the security queue. And as we were waiting to go through the metal detectors, the police were escorting a Jewish man back down who was yelling out in protest because he had been removed from the Temple Mount. It really made us feel the tension that is always now associated with this place in the city of Jerusalem. Now, once we got up through security and up the ramp and walked out onto the plaza, we finally could take a deep breath and take in the beauty of the building that's called the Dome of the Rock, whose golden dome you can see from almost anywhere in the city of Jerusalem. At first, I was relieved to finally be in an open-air plaza. This old city in Jerusalem is made up of all these winding and narrow streets. Sometimes they're even covered overhead. It can feel very claustrophobic. And so finally walking up onto the Temple Mount, there was open air and blue skies. But as I looked around, I could pick out the plainclothes policemen pretty quickly that were all over the plaza. 
They would move along the edges of any groups of pilgrims or people that were there. If you stopped too long or bent down, they would come up to remind you that prayer is not allowed on the Temple Mount and that you had to keep moving. This is all because of what is called the status quo for the Temple Mount. This location, as all of Jerusalem, but particularly this location, has been the focus of much tension and disturbance between the three great faiths that call Jerusalem holy. There has been violence on the Temple Mount, and currently only Muslims are allowed to pray there. The concern is, and only Muslims are allowed to pray there, there's a split opinion amongst the Jews on whether they should even go up onto the Temple Mount, with the concern being that there's no way to know where the Holy of Holies was actually located, and therefore to avoid defiling that holy place. Christians kind of stand as a midpoint, neither necessarily concerned about defiling the Holy of Holies, nor with all the prescriptions of the Muslim faith. And so we sort of stand in the middle of the plaza, but are still shepherded around to make sure that we don't stand still so long that it might look like we are praying. So, my relief of being in the open air with blue sky and a beautiful building on the Temple Mount was quickly replaced by the realization that this site that was so holy for Christians, Jews, and Muslims was probably the place that had the most barriers for anyone that wanted to encounter God. This Temple Mount is the geographic location for the scene that we get from the Gospel of John this morning. Except instead of an open plaza, Jesus would have found the courts of Herod's temple, Winding walls and beautiful artwork and with Passover near, the courts would have been filled with lots of people and activity. Our reading this morning is, of course, John's telling of the cleansing of the temple. We're used to, in hearing the story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, having this placed in Jesus' final days connected with the passion story. But in the Gospel of John, it's important to note that the cleansing of the temple comes at the beginning of the story. It is connected with a a season of signs and wonders that Jesus performs to reveal who he is. So the cleansing of the temple on the mount is a completion of the miracle of the turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. That first sign at the wedding revealed Jesus' glory and the cleansing of the temple is the second sign and reveals who Jesus is and what his authority is for doing these things. Now, this is a familiar story and one that we have to be very careful how we interpret and talk about, particularly when we hear the story from the Gospel of John, because we have often used these biblical texts in anti-Semitic and hateful ways. A usual interpretation of the cleansing of the temple is that Jesus has come to rid a corrupt and unjust system of money changing and selling sacrificial animals that somehow abuses people and prevents them from access to God. But when we read the text closely, there's nothing from the Gospel of John that implicates the people in the marketplace with having unfair dealings. 
Actually, when we look at this in its wider context, the folks that are changing money, right, taking Roman coin that has the image of Caesar on it and turning it into money that could be used and offered to God without a graven image, they're doing what people need to be in the temple. The folks there that are selling animals are meeting the need of all the people that are traveling from around Israel to the temple for the festival. They need to buy sacrificial animals on site. Could you imagine trying to bring a sheep or a cow or a dove unblemished across the wilderness of Israel? John even gives us details that when it comes to sacrificial animals, provisions are made for the wealthy, those that can afford cattle, and for the ones that don't necessarily have that much money because doves are available for them to buy as an offering. The money changers and the sellers are not so much corrupt as part of, but instead are part of a system that is working exactly how it was created to do. They are the people that change the profane into the world and translate it into the holy so that it can be offered in the temple. And so when Jesus shows up and throws cows and doves and money out, he is bringing a stop to the necessary transactions for worship. It would be as though he walked through the back door there and came to the altar and took all the bread and wine and threw it out the door. He is bringing things to a stop, not as a critique of the system, not saying that it is corrupt or wrong, but as a sign that the day has come that God is doing something new. To get a better understanding of what's going on here, we've got to flip back to our Old Testament to the prophet Zechariah. In the final verses of Zechariah, the prophet describes a future where all nations come to Jerusalem to worship. Zechariah says that on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts. And there shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That is what Jesus is doing, is announcing that that day that Zechariah has talked about has come. In his authority for doing so, we just have to go back to chapter 1 of this gospel. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son. Jesus ushers in that day because he is the word become flesh. Through the incarnation, God is reclaiming all of creation as holy. As Zechariah put it, the horses that were used for war now sing out in worship of God by the very bells that are on their bridles. The mundane cooking pots become sacred and can be put to use as worship. The need of a single king or a prophet or a temple to meet and hear God is no more because Jesus Christ is now the living presence of God that exists and moves out in the world. Through the incarnation, God is offering something new which is abundant life to all of creation. 
This becomes even clearer what Jesus is doing in the temple. If we think about a conversation that comes just a couple of chapters later when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well and they're talking about whether they should worship on the mountain in Jerusalem or worship on the mountain where the Samaritans go. And Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That soon the mountains aren't going to matter. That actually right now the mountains don't matter because God is present in the world now. The cleansing of the temple, perhaps especially how it is told in the Gospel of John, should keep us clergy types and maybe church leaders on our toes. It's a reminder that even while we're doing everything that we're supposed to do, while it is working the way it should, our liturgy, our sacraments, our beautiful buildings, God's precious presence is out there in all of creation and may be challenging us to do something new. For many of us, we have spent a year experiencing God out in the world, away from our beautiful buildings and our liturgy in the wilderness of this time of pandemic. And as it becomes safer, as we return to our familiar places and rhythms of worship, we need to be attentive for what ways God is calling us to do something new. How are we in new ways giving and receiving the abundant life of God offered in Jesus Christ? My brief moments spent on the Temple Mount were particularly marked by one incident. Something that took me out of sort of the tension and fear of the moment as I was standing there taking photos of the the golden dome of the rock, I noticed that these Big crows that are in Israel, they're, they're not like our crows. They're not all black. They're like fancy crows, right? They have black on their head, and then they're kind of charcoal gray. All these crows started coming down off the dome and landing on the plaza. It was a bit like a Hitchcock movie, and I could see it through the long lens of my camera, and so I started panning around to see what was disturbing the birds, why they were gathering, and I could see on the far side of the plaza this older man coming up, and walking towards me. He was carrying with him a bag, and as he moved across the plaza, the birds would sort of hop and flap the way they do, following him, kind of cascading down, following him as he walked onto the plaza. And then the next thing I noticed, as he got closer to us, the cats. Jerusalem has lots of stray cats. They play a very important pest control function in places, right, with hidden nooks and crannies. The cats start coming from behind me towards this man. And I don't know what's going on at this point. And then he stops. And he reaches down into his bag and he starts pulling out tins of cat food and popping the lids and putting them down. And then for the crows, he starts pulling out that looked like meat. I don't know what all crows eat. Some of it was meat. Some of it was bread. Some of it, I think, was some of the tins of cat food. And he starts throwing it over to the crows. And so for this strange little moment, here was this older Muslim man feeding the stray cats and tossing food to the birds. And they are coexisting. They're pretty close to each other. And we're just stuck there, standing there, looking at what happened. 
That man, I think got what a lot of us had missed that morning. We came up onto the plaza and we noticed the beautiful buildings and we got nervous by the plainclothes policemen and we worried about the tension and politics and the possible violence that could erupt at any point in time on the Temple Mount or in the city of Jerusalem. But this man came there that morning because he knew that the Temple Mount, whether you were Christian or Muslim or Jew, was the place of life and that God chose to meet us that all creation was holy and needed to be cared and fed for that God was not confined to the beauty of the buildings or the limitations of the world's religions but instead was present in the world and was incarnated in this act of kindness so simple as feeding the birds and the cats that needed to eat Jesus cleansed the temple to tell us God is doing something new. And God continues to do something new to challenge us to find ways to show kindness and love and bring abundant life. Amen.